Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the main functions of governments, especially local governments, is building stuff. And that stuff doesn't get much bigger than mass transit projects. But what happens when those projects get hit with delays, operational problems, or even safety issues? I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10.3. Ottawa Citizen reporter Blair Crawford and Edmonton Journal columnist Keith Gerine join me to look at problems with two major LRT projects, a scathing review into one of them, and how these issues could make it harder for cities to get buy-in on similar projects in the future. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Blair, in late November, a report was released relating to the inquiry into the construction and operation of Ottawa's Confederation Line LRT. And I do want to talk about that report momentarily, but for those in not in Ottawa who, who may not be following these issues so closely, what is the Confederation Line? Well, the Confederation Line, there, there's, uh, it's, it's an east-to-west line across Ottawa that uh, is above ground until it gets to the city's core, and then it goes underground for uh, probably about uh, three kilometers, I, I think. It goes under the core. There's, I, I guess, maybe four or five stations in the downtown. And it was opened, it was supposed to open in uh, 2017 in, uh, to, in conjunction with the 150th anniversary of Canada. Uh, it was delayed by construction problems. It finally opened in the fall of uh, 2018 and, and has been bedeviled by problems uh, since its, its opening. I remember even watching from afar when the line opened in 2018, even, you know, in early days, there were, there were problems right from the get-go. What kind of issues has the city of Ottawa faced with the operation of the Confederation line? Well, lots of problems with the operation. Maybe, maybe I'll start with, with some of the construction problems because uh, we had this enormous sinkhole right in the downtown, right at the, the, most important intersection of, in Ottawa, Rideau Street in Sussex, right beside the Chateau Laurier Hotel, if you know that. This huge sinkhole that uh, closed the street for, for the better part of a year, I think, swallowed a van. And uh, and that was a significant delay in the, in the construction of the LRT, which, which then cascaded down the line. When it finally opened, like I say, it was uh, more than a year late. Um, a- after that, there, in, initially when it when it started, there were the trains were not working. They had problems with the doors closing. There were trains canceled. They had to run a parallel bus service that, that paralleled the line just because the trains were unreliable. And uh, some of the designs of the station led to overcrowding, and it was a mess. I, I'm not a regular commuter on the LRT, although I do use it. Uh, but for the people who were depending on it, it was not... Uh, uh, not the best service to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I mean, early on, what were city officials saying about the service, about the line? How were they trying to placate angry transit commuters to, to say like, hey, we've got this under control? The biggest problem with the launch of the system was uh, Mayor Jim Watson, who's who's uh, now uh, left. He, he didn't run for re-election this year. He had promised an, an opening date 
there was a, a fairly rigorous testing procedure that the train had to operate for X number of days without uh, any failures. This was all done in secrecy and, and counselors weren't briefed on how that testing was going along. As, as we learned later, the city had lowered the threshold of what it considered as acceptable service from uh, uh, 98% to 96%. And then it was supposed to, I think it was 12 days, it had to run consecutively for 12 days without flaws. And what happened was they had a, a problem and they'd had to restart and eventually they they deep sixed that requirement too. So when the, when the system was launched, it hadn't met all the uh, the testing criteria that the that the city had originally uh, specified, and consequently, there were problems. Uh, the, the doors, uh, as I mentioned, uh, were were failing to close. Trains were stopped on the lines. Some of them, um, some of the problems that developed later on in use was the wheels, um, you know, started to get it around because uh, I guess the track wasn't properly ground to specifications. And it just was, was a, not a smooth launch uh, at all. So when was it decided that perhaps there needed to be a deeper look into this and, and elevate it to the level of a judicial inquiry? So even once the train started to run reasonable with a reasonable uh, dependability, we had two derailments uh, on the line. The first was in the the summer of 2021. There was a train derailed. There was no passengers on it at the time, but it was stuck on the tracks. They couldn't get it back to the the yards. Uh, the train was was uh, shut down for for quite a while. They got that fixed. the The cause of that derailment was uh, a gearbox problem a broken gearbox that that disabled the train. So when they finally got it off the line, restarted, just a few weeks later, I think maybe five or six weeks later, they had a second derailment. And that one was caused by, um, <laughs> in, in the process of inspecting all the cars after that first derailment, uh, they took all the, the cars off the line. This one was put back in service and there was uh, improper maintenance done. There, there was uh, an element of the train that was not properly, the bolts weren't properly torqued on. So... This uh, piece broke off, derailed the train. There were passengers on that one. No one was injured. And um, and again, the, the system was shut down for, I think, almost two months after that. A at this point, because of the delays in the construction, because of the, uh, the the problems with the launch, because of two derailments, the Transportation Safety Board is investigating them. At that point, the province decided to to uh, call a judicial inquiry to see what was uh, what had gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, over the course of the, the testimony at that inquiry, what kind of issues were being testified to with the line? So the, the LRT, the Confederation line was built by a consortium of uh, companies. Uh, there was the, the companies that are building the station, the tracks, the train manufacturer was uh, Alstom, a French uh, train manufacturer. And so they, they looked at everything. The, the, the train that was put in service had never been used in a winter climate like Ottawa. Well, as people in Edmonton <laughs> might laugh at us, but it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty cold here in winter. Nothing like uh, uh, what you'd see in Edmonton, of course. So there were, there were problems with the, the uh, choice of the train, problems with the construction, problems with maintenance. And, and of course, the city, uh, OC Transport, operates our, our bus and train system here. So there was testimony from all the elements of the consortium, from the city, uh, from councillors who were on the um, uh, transit commission here. It went on, I think it was uh, 18 days of testimony. 
morning or first thing in the morning all through the day it was very intense uh inquiry to to try and cover just uh, reams of information coming out from it and ultimately so we have the report drop late november what was the general tone of the findings what what did the judge in, in the inquiry find either fault or or recommendations for what should be done differently in the future. I understand that, you know, the phase two of the Confederation line is being built right now. So what did the judge find in this case? So, so the, uh, the judge who did the inquiry was uh, Justice William Horrigan. It was an incredible document. You know, I'm sure you've read through reports like this. I don't think I've ever seen a, a report with such plain language, such damning language. I mean, he talked about deliberate malfeasance, malfeasance by the city in uh, withholding information from council about the testing. He laid blame with the construction course consortium. The, the sinkhole that I mentioned on Rideau Street, the city was being insure, uh, assured by the, the consortium that it wasn't going to delay the, the launch date, when in fact it, it ended up being a, a year late. And so Justice Horrigan said that was unconscionable of the uh, the builders to, to be dishonest with the city because that information was then presented to the public as fact when, when uh, I think even the city didn't believe the, the builders that, that the uh, uh, sinkhole hadn't delayed the start. And it was very damning of the the senior bureaucrat in the in the city, a man named Steve Kanalakis, who was um, singled out in the report for for basically lying to council council about uh, the testing results and, and putting some rose colored glasses on to to hide just how serious some of the flaws were with the with the line. It was an amazing document, very well written and. Uh, damning of everyone, but in particular of the how the city handled it. What about the procurement method? It, like, it, was this a P3 project and were there concerns raised about how this particular project was kind of managed through the procurement process on the part of the city? It was a P3 and Justice Horgan did spend quite a bit of time uh, talking about that and, and, and explaining how P3s work because uh, certainly I, I'm, you know, throw the term around without really understanding all the ramifications of it. He did a very good job of laying it out, uh, the advantages and disadvantages of P3s. And basically, he said, you have to be very careful about what you're getting into with a P3. Because one of the factors is it it, it removes city oversight of, of maintenance uh, and, and construction, for example, uh, which can be a good thing. It, it puts the risk uh, of those on the, the companies that are doing it. But at the same time, it means you don't have that uh, uh, direct control that that you would have if if the city were doing it itself. So he didn't he didn't uh, say P3s are uh, are all bad, but he did caution municipalities to be aware of of the the pluses and minuses of of a P3. So essentially, he said that you know oversight can be a problem. So perhaps you need to negotiate for some better oversight in the future. I, I think so, and and I guess we never public private partnership, of course, is what we were talking about with P3s. That uh, yeah, he said that the, it it comes with a trade off, and you have to be able to accept that. And also because the the consortium and the the builders and the train maker are the ones that are assuming the risk. They're not going to do that for free, so it can actually increase the cost in in some cases because uh, uh, if they're taking the risk, they they deserve to be to be paid a little more for assuming that risk. And what did the judge say in terms of like how to prevent some of these issues from happening again, or even as as Ottawa embarks on on phase two of the Confederation line? 
how to prevent similar issues with the line. And, and also I'm curious, did the judge talk about just, you know, these large scale projects in Canada and, and challenges faced by municipalities in getting them built? The overriding recommendation of the report was accountability and transparency. And I mean, he is damning of the city. He said, you know, looking at, at how the LRT was handled, he, he uh, questioned whether the city was was even capable of managing such a massive uh, infrastructure as, as the LRT. That said, a lot of the key players that, that he laid blame on, Mayor Watson, John Mancone, the former uh, OC transport director, Steve Kanellakis, the uh, city manager, they've all left. Kanellakis retired two days before the report was released, uh, obviously knew that that he wasn't going to come off looking uh, so good in it. And, and I asked uh, the, the commission's lawyer about what lessons could be taken from it for stage two. As stage two is extending the line, the uh, LRT line to the east, south and west. And, and it's well underway. It's the first part is to open next year, I think. And it's 4.6 billion, 2.1 billion for the for stage one of the LRT. That was the city's uh, largest infrastructure project in its history. This one is 4.6 billion, and and he's he said that that accountability and transparency are key, and and that can apply to any project. And and the city has seems to have taken uh, that to heart. We have a new mayor in Ottawa, Mark Sutcliffe, who says that he's struck a, a task force to uh, review how the city can be more transparent to make sure the public gets accurate information and truthful information. And ultimately, Mayor Jim Watson did not run again. Was there any political fallout just for the last you know, few years? I know the report came out after the municipal election, but has there been any political fallout for the management or the mismanagement of this project? It, it, there is, but but as, as I said, most of the key players have uh, are off the scene now. The one uh, person who's left is uh, Councillor Alan Hoobly, who was was chairman of the uh, Transit Commission at the time, and the, and there have been calls for him to resign to seat. I mean, he was just reelected uh, a month and a half ago, and there are calls for him to resign because he was he was one of the inner circle uh, of city leaders that that knew what was going on, but didn't uh, pass it on to the city or, or even to his fellow councillors who, who were asking for information about testing criteria and, and so on. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of anger and fallout, but it's a matter of, of where do you place it when, when the people to blame are, are no longer on the scene. I guess the city, the best that can be done is to learn the lessons, take these uh, recommendations uh, from Justice Horgan's report to heart and try and do a better job. And it's important information out there and important report for the the citizens of Ottawa. Blair, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, Dave. Take care. Coming up after the break, Edmonton Journal columnist Keith Gerine joins me to discuss how Ottawa's lessons could be applied elsewhere. I'm joined now by Edmonton Journal columnist Keith Gerine. Now, Keith, I talked to Blair Crawford at the Ottawa Citizen about the Confederation line and the inquiry into the challenges with, with that line. Out here in Edmonton, we've had our own challenges with the Valley Line LRT. And for those outside of Edmonton who may not be familiar with what the Valley Line is, can you give us just a bit of a, a background of the line itself and some of the challenges that Edmonton has faced regarding this LRT? Yeah, so this is uh, an, an entirely new LRT line uh, that it runs from downtown to the southeast of Edmonton into an area called Mill Woods. 
And it was put together by a, a P3. That was the requirement of the Harper government back in the day. And it is a different technology than Edmonton's current LRT lines. It uses a, a low floor car and runs almost entirely along the surface, whereas the other line uh, does have a lot of underground portions. It was supposed to be up and running by this time of year, two years ago, so December 2020, and has been plagued by a number of delays. The first one was the discovery of this uh, concrete block in the river, which sort of delayed the the bridge construction from downtown to the south side of Edmonton. That was the first delay. There were COVID workforce issues that uh, were also blamed for some of the delay. That was for the first year and a half of delay. And then just most recently, the uh, the company that's been hired to build this uh, consortium called TransEd, they've discovered that uh, there are a number of concrete piers that have cracks in them. About two-thirds of the piers along the line uh, have cracks in them that require structural repairs. And so that work is ongoing now, and we, we're still not sure exactly how long that's going to take, but uh, that is the current source of delay. And, you know, for, for people who may be familiar with with Edmonton and, and large procurement uh, initiatives, large infrastructure projects, delays are not uncommon here, but this seems to be a rather egregious delay. It's, I, I imagine, costing TransEd a whole lot of money, I, I, given that under a P3, they have to have the project done by a certain deadline. But from the city's perspective, are there concerns being raised about how this whole project was created and, and planned and put together? Yeah, I think I think those concerns have certainly ramped up the longer this has been delayed. I, back in the, in the day when this project was first agreed to, there, the city was not overly thrilled at having to do it through a P3 process. Uh, Concerns were brought up at that time, but that was the requirement to get federal funding. And so they proceeded along it. Uh, Now, you know, as you said, there are delays that happen to any kind of project, regardless of whether it's done through a P3. Edmondson certainly had their share of those over the years. But there are concerns creeping in now about you know, maybe the, there were some unrealistic timelines about when this could be delivered. We did see that in Ottawa. We're now seeing those complaints uh, being raised uh, in Toronto with the Eglinton LRT line that's also been done through a P3. Uh, so that's certainly a consideration. There are some concerns around, you know, the transed finances at this point, right? They have said that they are financially secure. They can handle all the cost overruns. They are foregoing payments right now uh, until the line opens. But they also got a credit downgrade uh, just this year as well. So the, there are questions about transit's ability to, to finish this on time. And then questions around, is there a potential you know, temptation to skimp on maintenance, uh, as was the case in Ottawa as well. Hopefully that's not the case, but this hasn't actually started running yet until it starts running. We won't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I, I mean, looking to Ottawa, the, the inquiry revealed a host of issues, whether, you know, city council being kept in the dark about potential problems, about, as you said, maintenance and skimping out on maintenance for the duration of the project. What are some other areas where you feel that potentially Edmonton and other municipalities in Canada could learn from what was uncovered in the Ottawa inquiry. Well, one of the things that uh, was brought up in Ottawa is uh, there were some problems with the cars that were designed by Alstom, formerly Bombardier. And they were cars that were specifically designed for the Ottawa scenario. And Alstom has said that they the designs that Ottawa wanted were really kind of pushing past the limits of what an LRT could do. Fortunately, in Edmonton, we have a different design. The cars 
are still made by Alstom, uh, a different design. But the cars that are coming here don't have an extensive track record, at least not in North America in the cold weather climates. They've, I believe, been in service for a couple of years in Kitchener-Waterloo. They are cars that are going to be rolled out in Toronto, but not an extensive track record. So that's a potential risk. It's interesting to note that the west leg of the Valley Line, which is the next leg to come online, the city decided not to go with Alstom cars again, but to get an entirely different technology uh, from Hyundai. For, for train cars as part of that project. So you've got the potential for this kind of mismatch, mismatch technology to be on the line. So that that's a risk. I did mention the, you know, the financial pressures. The other thing that came out of Ottawa is that the inquiry commissioner found a real acrimonious relationship developed between the city of Ottawa and the companies hired to, to build and maintain the line. And he said, this is a bad situation, especially for a P3, because those two entities are essentially stuck with each other for the next 30 years. That's the agreement under the P3 for those companies to maintain the line. And we have the same situation in Edmonton, a 30-year agreement where TransEd has to operate and maintain the line. And so if there's an acrimonious relationship that's developed at this point, and there's indications that it has, you may be stuck in this kind of dysfunctional marriage for three decades, and you can't really do anything about it. You're really stuck with each other. Now, looking at the P3 model on the whole, I mean, you raised the question in, in a recent column, and the inquiry raises this question, uh, whether the P3 model is appropriate for large-scale infrastructure projects, specifically transit infrastructure projects like this. Is it a case where, you know, with Edmonton, maybe the structure of the P3 model wasn't wasn't right. Maybe the city didn't have as much oversight potentially as they would have liked. Or is it a concern that perhaps public-private partnerships don't work with projects like this where there's the potential for delays, potential for overruns, and the potential for technological issues like Edmonton has seen with, with other projects like this? Yeah, that is a, a fascinating question. And I, I feel like we might need a, a public inquiry or some similar process in Edmonton like they had in Ottawa to get to the bottom of that as to whether it is P3s in general that are just inappropriate for kind of big transit projects like this, or whether it's just this particular P3 or the the ones that we've seen in Edmonton, Toronto, and Ottawa that aren't working for some reason. And so we we don't have a good answer to that. Part of the problem with P3s, in my view, is that it really does compromise on transparency and oversight. So it, in a typical build where the city is kind of controlling the project, there would be regular updates to city council and the mayor. Uh, we could do audits. Um, there would be public documents posted. Uh, cost updates and so on, all of, all sorts of things that the public could check in on and counselors could check in on to see what the progress is going. Under a P3, all of the communications uh, are behind closed doors. The TransEd controls all of that. Uh, if council wants an update on how the project is going, it's in private. And if they you want to go talk to a counselor about what's going on, they are adamant that they can't say anything except for what TransEd has already said publicly. So I think that's a real that's a real drawback. It, it takes away that direct line of accountability between Edmontonians and their city councillors and, and the city managers who, who work for city council. So that is, uh, I think, something that, that needs to be addressed. Also, we cannot 
use freedom of information to try and get some of these answers as well, because P3s and those companies are protected. Now, one of the things that was pointed out to me by Blair at the Ottawa Citizen was the idea that a public inquiry into the Confederation line was was called by the province after there were a couple of derailments of trains on that line. You know, obviously in Edmonton's case, the line's not even open, um, and we hope that there's we don't have safety concerns like that once it does open. But because the the scenario is a little different, we may never get answers in Edmonton, correct? Like there's at this point, the province doesn't necessarily have the authority to come in and say, we need a deeper look at this because there are problems here. Or does the province have that power? In theory, they do. They would have the ability to call a, a, a public inquiry. Now, TransEd may push back on that. The federal government may push back on that. I'm not sure. But it, my understanding is that the province could certainly try to to get at this in, in an investigation. So hopefully we will, we will see that. Now, at least in my view, there does need to be some sort of investigation, whether it's a full public inquiry or not. Now, you're right, the line hasn't started yet. We don't know uh, and we hope that there won't be any um, you know, structural breakdowns and delays and derailments. It does seem, at least in Edmonton's case, that they're not rushing this into service like they did in Ottawa, and that safety is a top priority, which is really good to see. But that doesn't mean that there isn't damage here. So there's obviously financial damage to TransEd, but there's also reputational damage. And that is something that I think needs to be fully explored. There's, a, I think, a broken trust with uh, a lot of Edmontonians, some people who moved along the LRT line, made life decisions, say not buying a car because they expected they would be on an LRT line. That service hasn't hasn't started yet. So I think they have been put out and there's no compensation for them. But there is also a, a bigger battle going on right now, a real public relations battle on transit ridership, right, which got decimated during the pandemic. It's been exacerbated by some social disorder issues that have come out after the, the worst of the pandemic. Uh, and so it's really a struggle to try to get people back on trains and buses. And it's also been a struggle for the city increasingly to convince the public that we should be investing in these really expensive, really complicated mass transit projects. And there are voices out there saying we shouldn't have these anymore because they're just not worth it and they don't work. Um, so that public confidence, that loss of public confidence, I think is a major, major problem because cities, a lot of their very important goals around fighting climate change, around having more sustainable cities, about reducing sprawl, it all depends on having public confidence in transit. And delays like this, problems like this, safety problems, they really, really cut into that. And so it's not just, say, Edmonton and Ottawa that could could run into these issues, but this is something that could kind of taint the discussion about public transit in cities across Canada. Absolutely. And the more we see it in different places, Edmonton, we're seeing it in Toronto with the Eglinton line. We've seen it in Ottawa. There are new transit projects. The, the Trudeau government has, has distributed a lot of money for new transit projects um, across the country. And if these continue to have problems, whether done through a P3 or not, uh, you, I think you're going to see increasing skepticism about the value of building these things and the value of using them. Well, it's a fascinating discussion affecting people across Canada. Keith, thanks for your time. Thanks, Dave. Take care. 10.3 is produced by Tyler Dawson. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guests, Blair Crawford and Keith Jarine. More from them at Ottawa Citizen and EdmontonJournal.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.